Well, good morning again. Uh, I trust that your souls are well, that you are longing to hear from the Lord. You're longing to hear from the Lord. I say from the Lord intentionally as we get into our study this morning. I hope you will see what I mean. I want to begin by taking you to Colossians chapter 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 18 with me. As many of you know, we are in our series of study in Colossians. We're in chapter 3, but I want to read verse 18 of chapter 1. And Paul writes this, He is also head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is he that? And check this out, the purpose clause, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So that he would be first, Paul says, in every realm. And that is the theme of Colossians. The preeminence and the excellence of Christ over all things, over all the earth, every realm, you personally, your family, and your church. Christ desires to be first. Christ must, in fact, be first. If God rescued you from darkness, as he said earlier, and transferred you into Christ's kingdom, then the king comes first. Can we all agree that Jesus must come first for all of us who are in his kingdom. He is the most important. He is the most glorious. He is the most precious. But here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. When you look at and analyze a church, how can you tell whether or not this church is concerned about Christ? How can you determine that Christ comes first and is preeminent over all things in this church, in this body, or in another church? What are the signs in a church where, where Christ is the true head, not just in position, but in actual practice? And as we turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be studying verses 15 to 17, I will submit to you that these three verses coupled with the previous three that we studied last Sunday, give a perfect indication of whether or not Christ is preeminent in a church. I think all of us here agree with the statement and even desire Christ to be glorified and honored. At least I heard a couple of prayers even this morning saying, Christ be glorified, Christ be honored. And we want Christ to be glorified and honored at Grace Hill, right? This is our constant prayer. This is our, our ambition. This is our ultimate aim. But if we're going to break this down, Christ being glorified and honor into smaller components, into smaller pieces and parts of Christ being first in the church, what would these elements be? What are we ultimately asking? We began last Sunday by identifying the first component. If Grace Hill's goal is to glorify and honor Christ, then all its members will strive to put on Christ first. That's the, that's the first and foremost. And so we, we went and we discussed verses 12 through 14, and we said that, church, we ought to put on Christ. We ought to put on the virtues and graces of Christ. And then we said we ought to put these things on so that we can put up with one another, so that we can live a life of community with one another into which we were called by our Lord himself. And so for the church, for Christ to be first in the church, the virtues of Christ must be put on in the church. But that's not all. Verse 15 here is tied to the previous context, to the previous verse with this small little conjunction and and if you have translation like ESV, English Standard Version, or maybe some of you carry uh, New Living Translation, or even King James Version, they have, verse 15 starts, and let the peace of Christ. For whatever reason, NASB 
translating committee omitted that verse or that little uh, word and. Um, so go ahead and write that in. It's, it's in the original, so it's good to have it. It's good to connect that verse to the previous context, okay? So the following verses here, they're attached to the previous section, which all focus on life in the body of Christ. And I want us to read this, and I want to talk about three other components that we ought to be about if Christ is going to be first and foremost and preeminent at Grace Hill. So open, if you're not there yet, Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 12 through 17. And I want us to look at these verses as I read along. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God, the father. I want us to give us a very simple yet very important proposition this morning. And that is this, a church where Christ comes first is where the peace of Christ rules the church, where the word of Christ permeates the church and where the name of Christ dominates the church. A church where Christ comes first is where the peace of Christ rules the church, where the word of Christ permeates the church and where the name of Christ dominates the church. And I want us to consider these three in consecutive order. Verse 15, first of all, the peace of Christ rules the church. I don't need to, to remind you, church, that we live in the time of great conflict and opposition. A brief scroll through our social media feeds or a glance at the news will reveal strife, hatred, and all kinds of bitterness in our society. But we know that to be true, right? We know that would be the case. Scripture tells us that sin besets the entire world. Those who set themselves up in opposition to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It began in the garden and it will continue on. I mean, consider what Isaiah says in verse uh, 22 of chapter 48. Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked. Quoting the Lord, says the Lord. That's what the Lord says in Isaiah. There is no peace for the wicked. And so when we consider our society and those who set themselves up in opposition against God, that is the result, strife, hatred, bitterness. But what is unfortunate, however, is that this bitterness, strife, and even hatred often penetrate into our homes and they make their way into our churches where we begin to experience similar unrest. So the reality of Colossians chapter 315 is very important because it is so needed today, especially today, considering the context in which we live. And so Paul writes, and he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know, in the Bible, there are various or several kinds of peace that God offers to his people. First and foremost, God offers peace with God, peace with himself, Godward peace. You know, because of sin, each of us is born as an enemy of God. And therefore, as his enemies, we need reconciliation. We need restoration. And God provides a plan. God provides a way that through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the cross work of Christ, the Bible teaches that we can be at peace with God. Paul already considered this aspect of Godward peace. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Christ, and through him to, check this out, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this is the very first thing that, that Paul considers, and he thanks God because through Christ, through his body, God accomplished peace. God accomplished reconciliation to those who were at one point apart from Christ. Those who were his enemies. Now Paul praises the Lord and he says the father was well pleased to send his son in order to die. So that through his death on the cross, we may be reconciled to the father. Essentially same thing Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. He says, therefore having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith. In other words, you have peace, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of faith, none of your works, none of your accomplishment. The only thing you do, the only thing we did was believe in what Jesus offered to us. And that is himself for our sins by faith. And so again and again, the Bible says that at one point we were enemies, but because of his grace and kindness towards us sinners, we are granted peace. We're reconciled to the Holy One. Oh, church, what an amazing gift this is. And I think this is the reason why we gather here, even in these circumstances, to praise our God because we are forgiven and because we have peace with him. Because of what he has accomplished. But as a result of this peace with God, the scripture says that we also have peace with one another. We have the communal peace. When God reconciles sinners to himself, he brings them together into one body, the church, as a consequence. These sinners are then reconciled to one another. So where before there existed this animosity and strife and discord now, because all sinners are in Christ, what Paul teaches in Colossians, Christ is all and in all. We no longer look at each other from the standpoint of flesh. In other words, we don't consider and, 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 and we don't care what we look like, how much we make, what language we speak. In Christ, in one body, all of these differences are demolished. The most important one is Jesus Christ and how we relate to him and through him. Consider again what he says in Colossians 3.11. A renewal in which there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But guess what? The only one that matters is Christ so that he is all and so that he is in all. And therefore, Paul says, let this peace of Christ, peace with God and peace with men, peace with one another rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. This clause here reinforces the the fact that Paul is not referring here to this inner peace that other passages certainly discuss. This individual peace of mind, but a peace that characterizes the church, the body of Christ as a whole. You have been called to peace, Paul says. Therefore, church, maintain that peace. Preserve the peace that Christ gives to the fellow members of the body. And the command is here, look at verse 15 again, let the peace rule, rule. This is the only time this term is used in the New Testament to rule. It's an athletic term that speaks of an umpire, like baseball umpire. You have pitchers, you have catchers, you have the umpire who stands right behind the catcher and he calls balls and strikes. He basically calls strike in or out. People love him. People hate him. Depends on his call. But he is the guy who has a rule book. And based on this book, he's making all the calls. And so what Paul is telling us is that we have peace with one another. We have peace of Christ in our hearts. And this peace must make 
our calls. We must, this peace must govern, must judge, must become the deciding factor. Where? Where should this peace rule? Paul says, in your hearts. Probably signifying the mind or our thinking process and by extension means the whole person. So what Paul is saying that, that each member of the body in making decisions and choosing alternatives in setting conflicts must be concerned to preserve both inward and this communal peace that Christ gave and continues to give. Our individual pursuit of peace is required to maintain corporate peace in the body. That's why he says each one of you need to be concerned with keeping peace, with having peace rule in your hearts because you're called in one body where you share this unity and peace. Let the peace of Christ. Allow the peace that belongs to Christ, which he graciously gives you, decide what to do in any given situation. Church, this is a call for us to surrender to Christ, for us to surrender to God. Christ has established this peace. He gives this peace. He sustains this peace. This peace is better than anything else we can ever come up with. Better than any other human alternative. Our work is to maintain the peace that Christ has already established. I guess the, the other side of this is the pursuit of unity. When you read Ephesians chapter 4, Mike read from chapter 5, but chapter 4, it begins with this fact. You are saved. You are called by the gospel church. Therefore, as, as Christ's followers, you have been united in one body. Christ has accomplished unity for you on the cross. Therefore, maintain this unity. You don't have to look for this unity somewhere. You don't have to find another element that will unify you around no, one element, there's one person, Jesus Christ. He brings in unity, we maintain it. Same exact idea here. Let the peace of Christ unite you to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. How? How are we to do that? Well, look at the previous verses that we studied last time. He says, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Love, love one another. How will church pursue peace with one another? Members who have peace with God, how will they remain peaceful with one another? And the answer is, you just put on Christ. You rest in his accomplished work and you walk in his virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgiving each other, knowing that Christ forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, he says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And then he jumps in, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Oh, this is so very important. When God tells us to allow this peace to rule, by implication, it must mean that other factors could dominate and rule our lives. Could, could be those umpires and judges. The point is we are not to be ruled by our circumstances by our problems, by various pressures, even by our emotions, we are to be governed by this Christological peace. Church, what if in our relationships with one another, we look to the peace of Christ as the umpire? What if in every dispute we step back and, and looked for a ruling from the standpoint of us being at peace with God and as us being at peace with one another? What if every dealing with one another was run through this filter of peace as that umpire? That's what Paul is challenging us to do, church. Make the peace of Christ your goal and your final authority. Everything that we do must answer this question. Will this further the peace of Christ in our hearts to which I have been called, to which we have been called in one body? And that is the key. That is exactly how the body is built up. A body at war with one another will not grow. Paul has not given us here a trick to keep each other happy. Not trying to trick us into happiness so that we can 
just get along with one another. Rather, it's a diagnostic whether we are living the new life of Christ. This whole section here deals with the new man, deals with the new self, and how these new men and women who are saved, who are radically transformed, behave in the body of Christ. Peace is one of the fruits of the spirit. One of the marks of a spirit-filled church is that there is peace in that church. Its members are ruled by peace of Christ, and therefore they maintain this communal harmony. With what attitude are we to do this? He says at the end of verse 15, and be thankful with thankfulness, be thankful. This is not a separate command, but as we will see every single verse here, 15, 16, and 17 has this command to be thankful to the Lord become really the idea here is to become thankful, get in the habit of being thankful to the Lord and to one another. As the Bible knowledge commentary puts it, an attitude of gratitude contributes to an enjoyment of spiritual tranquility, whereas grumbling makes for inner agitation. An attitude of gratitude contributes to the enjoyment of spiritual peace. Communal life, brothers and sisters, begins with peace with God. And as a result, we have peace with one another. And brothers and sisters, ask yourself, is Christ peace ruling my heart? Are we putting on the love of Christ as verse 14 indicates and maintaining unity and peace with one another, which Christ accomplished on the cross so that Christ is seen and worship in our midst. If Christ is to be first and foremost, he's to be preeminent in this church, then his peace must rule in our hearts and in this body. And the question is, how do we allow this peace to dominate and to rule our hearts and our relationships with one another? And Paul gets at that in verse 16 by allowing the word of God to permeate us by allowing the word of God to permeate us, which brings us to our second point, a church where Christ comes first is where not only the peace of Christ rules, but also where the word of Christ permeates the church. Consider what Paul says in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If I was going to paraphrase this, this verse 16, it would sound, it, it would go something like this. Let the message of Christ operate in your hearts and in your midst and enrich you with all its wealth through your teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and your singing to God with thanksgiving. And with all your heart, not simply with your lips, but using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. And I'm praying that each of us here in this local body would adopt the same mindset so that this verse would come to describe Grace Hill. Paul is saying here, allow the word of Christ to penetrate you to permeate you through teaching, admonishing, and singing. And I want you to know something in these verses. The reason why this section addresses the entire church is because all the pronouns in this section and all the commands are plural commands and plural pronouns. Again, in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's within you all. It's everyone, not just single individuals, but you all, the entire church of Christ and all the commands that are given here in verse 16, let it dwell in you. It's also plural. The word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? The word of Christ is the message of Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. The word of Christ, which he actually spoke while he was on earth and then also what the spirit revealed through the apostles later on as they wrote the new Testament. But not only that, it also extends to the, to the entire scripture as Jesus himself in John five, remembers John five thirty nine. He says the old Testament, the scripture testify about me. So let this word, let the word of Christ, Paul says, richly dwell within you dwell. Let the word dwell to be at home in literally. Let it be at home. Let it reside in a specific place. Notice the message of Christ, Paul says, must reside within us. 
Listen, it's one thing for the believers to be in the word. It's a different thing for the word to be in a believer. And this is what Paul is after. Let the word of Christ reside in you and have full access to all of our lives. Listen, you who own homes or you who rent homes, when you rent a home or when you buy a home, the entire place is yours. Not a single room is locked from your access. Why? Because this is your place. You dwell in it. And you can go into every closet, every place. Why? Because nothing is on li- off limits. It's your place. What Paul is saying here, let the word of Christ so saturate and so dominate you, permeate you that no place in your life, no compartment in your heart is off limits to the exposure to the word of God, to the confrontation by the word of God. Let the word of God of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what Jesus says in, in John 15, seven, where he says, if you abide in me, you abide in me and my words abide in you. My words make their dwelling in you. So the word of Christ is not merely a resident The word of Christ is not renting a room out in your heart, but it is to be operative as a powerful force. That's why Paul says qualifies this dwelling as richly abundantly. The word of God, the words of Christ, the gospel ought to dwell richly in the person who has put on the new life. After all, the words of Christ is both the cause of life. Remember what James chapter one, verse 18 says in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Not only are we brought forth by the word of truth, we also renew our mind in the word over and over. And the mark of a healthy Christian living this new life is that they are saturated with God's word. They read it. They know it. They meditate on it. They enjoy it. That's why that exhortation that Peter writes to the Christians scattered all over the place in chapter two, verse one says, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Why? Why should you long? Why should you desire? Why should you go after it? Because through the word, We grow in respect to salvation. Church, can the same thing be said of us? Each member individually. Is the word of God residing in you freely or is it a stranger in your house? You can't be permeated or saturated with something unless you immerse yourself in it. Do you long for the word of Christ? Do you long for the word of Christ? What are the means or methods by which this word of Christ becomes operative and permeates the body? Look at verse 16 again with me. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. How Paul, he says, through the teaching, through admonishing and through singing. Three ways, three modes, teaching, admonishing and singing, teaching. Teaching is receiving instruction from from God's word. It stresses the positive side. You deposit the truth about Christ to one another. You come, you open up the truth of God's word, and you are being taught by the word, either through another individual or personally, you come in face to face with the word of God. Instruction. Now, admonishing is is the the negative side of things where it warns and it corrects you. You bring the truth of God's word to bear on a particular situation when you want to correct yourself, when you want to correct a brother or a sister, and you point them and you want to admonish them by bringing the truth and say, hey, listen, I'm observing something and, and with love towards this individual, you want to correct them because you want them as part of your community to honor Jesus. And therefore you bring this word and you teach and you admonish. But since the focus here is corporate teaching and admonishing, check this out, one another. The focus here is more than just personal reading and study. Although I believe that's assumed. You can't teach or admonish anyone unless unless you get in the habit of regular dieting in the word. But here the church is in view. How does the word dwell in us corporately and permeates the entire body? First of all, 
through the preaching of God's word, through the preaching of God's word. Second Timothy chapter four, right after Paul declares the character of the word of God, second Timothy three 16, where he says though all scripture is inspired by God. Remember that? And it's profitable. So as soon as he makes this declaration about the character of the word, Paul charges Timothy, okay, an evangelist and a teacher and a pastor there in Ephesus. And he says this, I solemnly charge you, 2 Timothy verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Exactly the same thing. Teach the word, preach the word, admonish, rebuke, re, uh, reprove, exhort, and do it with great patience. And as pastors preach, like I am doing right now, the word of God is being taught. The message of Christ is being proclaimed. The spirit of Christ is engaged in our midst and is operable in our hearts in order to transform us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, into the greater image of Jesus Christ. And so that is why church, this is so important. That is why this gathering is so crucial. We gather to hear the word of Christ preached because when the church congregates to hear the preaching of God's word, pay attention to this. The scripture teaches that they're not there to hear the preacher talk about Jesus. Okay. When the church congregates together to hear the preaching of God's word, the church does not gather to hear the preacher talk about Jesus but that Christ himself speaks through the preacher. When preachers preach, Christ speaks. Open to Romans chapter 10. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 10. This is pretty amazing passage. And this is not the only passage that clearly teaches this truth. Romans chapter 10, you will recall about Paul as Paul talks about preachers and declaring this good news of salvation, the preacher's feet that are beautiful because they bring good news of good things to the people, quoting Isaiah. But look what he says in verse 14, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom, in him, whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Think about this. Notice it doesn't say, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? In fact, I was doing my, um, outline for Russian translation last night. And I pulled up the Russian uh, Bible and I looked at it and that's exactly what it says in the Russian translation of whom they have not heard. That is not what the original says. The original says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And brothers and sisters, this makes all the difference. To the extent that the preaching of Christ's message matches the preaching of Christ himself, when preachers preach, Jesus is speaking. And that is why this is so important. That is why if you're still in Romans 10, look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Not the word of the preacher, not the word of the messenger, the word of Christ himself. When preachers preach, Christ preaches. Faith comes through the word that Jesus speaks through the preacher that he sends. Consider another place. Consider what the author of Hebrews believed about his own sermon as he preached and expounded God's word. Many of you are probably aware that Hebrews is a sermon. The, the letter to the Hebrews, 13 chapters, is just one sermon. And so it's full of teaching, exhortation, admonishing, pleading with people what every sermon should actually 
have. And so in chapters three and four, the writer of Hebrews, he appeals to uh, Psalm 95 and he quotes from Psalm 95 verses seven and eight. And he says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's what he quotes. And, and we ask ourselves, how is it the, that the people might hear God's voice today? Like if I was going to quote this verse to you today, brothers and sisters, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Let me read what Jonathan Griffiths in his book, preaching in the new Testament says regarding this dilemma. He says, it takes only a moment's reflection to realize that in the first instance, it is as the writer expounds God's word through his own sermon that the congregation will hear God's voice. The poignancy of the refrain from Psalm 95 derives from the fact that the people gathered to listen to the Hebrew sermon are that very moment hearing God's voice today. That is why church, we gather corporately to hear the word of God so that we could hear Christ. As we hear from Christ, his word dwells and permeates us individually and corporately. Go back to Colossians chapter three, as we continue to look at this verse. But the ultimate goal is for the preached word to become so effective that the entire congregation engages in this work of teaching, admonishing one another. You know, Paul in in Colossians chapter one, verse 28, he described his own task as this. He says, we proclaim him, Jesus. We admonish every man and teach every man. Exactly the same thing that Paul now is commanding all of us to do. In chapter one, it was Paul's task. He says, I do this as a pastor, as a church planter, as an evangelist. That's my goal to come in and to do this for you, to do this with you. But listen, in, in the next chapter, he calls all of the congregation to be about this business of teaching and admonishing one another. That is why personally, I'm so excited along with other men about restarting our small groups, our live groups this week, because this is where we have the opportunity to speak and to share and to encourage one another with what God is doing in our lives through his word. That is where we allow the word of Christ to permeate us this local body, and even beyond live groups, when we gather together, our conversation should be about the word of God dominating our thoughts, our conversations, and how we can come together, rally around each other, instruct and admonish, correct, help, encourage to follow after Jesus. He says, we do this with all wisdom, with all wisdom, spiritual insight for life that is found in Christ alone. Colossians chapter two, verse three, in the previous chapter, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in order for us to be saturated with scripture, we must load up on scripture. We are to be soaking in scripture like a sponge is loaded up with water. You know, ever try to soak a sponge and, and, and take few steps without water dripping out of this sponge. It's impossible. You can't do it. One British uh, preacher made this insightful observation. He said this, the surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket is wet feet. The surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet uh, feet. Why? Because it's heavy and you're carrying it and you rub against it and water spills and usually your feet get wet. And church, this is the goal. Load up soak up on Christ so that you can spill over with the words of Christ that all things would point to him as being preeminent, as being sovereign, as being the greatest. Why? Because he is a king in his kingdom. So the word of God becomes operative and permeates the body as we teach and admonish one another, but also consider this as we sing to one another, as we sing to one another. Friends, true worship is inspired and directed by the word of God. True worship is inspired and is directed by the word of God. Singing, consider this as a function of having the word of Christ in you. And I will probably, we can make this statement that a church that loves the word should be a church that loves to sing. God instituted singing as a teaching tool for his people. 
the way we allow the word of Christ to permeate us and to dwell among us is through singing. Let the word dwell by singing. And look what he says here in verse 16, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, almost all the commentators indicate that it's virtually impossible to differentiate between these three words, and yet they all try to do that. So I'll give you what they're giving you, okay? Psalms probably refers to the Old Testament Psalms. Scripture, Old Testament songs and Psalms. The the hymns here, they probably refer to the New Testament hymns about Christ that were composed by the early Christians, okay? So we have the Old Testament songs. Um, That's why we often go to these Psalms and we sing them. There are, there are bands and groups that literally just pick psalms and they put them to music and they sing them. Why? Because they minister the word of God to your soul. And so Paul says, expose yourself to the psalms, to the Old Testament literature so that it can minister the word of God to you. Not only that, the, the New Testament hymns about Christ that are composed by the early Christian. And then this last category, spiritual songs that extends to all other forms of songs with the limitation that they are spiritual, spiritual songs. And so you can add all of these latest hymns, church hymns, all the other songs that we sing that are edifying the soul. That is why church, we have to make sure that what we sing is edifying. If our songs are not communicating scriptural truth, we got to get rid of these songs and put them away. Why? Because they're not doing what scripture tells us songs should be doing. We need to replace them and we need to pick new songs. Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, the parallel passage to this says that we speak to one another in songs. You know, sometimes you have a conversation and, and you don't really know how to communicate what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And then all of a sudden the Lord gives you a song and you just kind of sing that verse. And like, that's exactly how I feel. And you can minister through songs to one another, the word of Christ. But singing is not only the means by which the word permeates the body. It's also a response. It's a response. The rhythm of a healthy church is to respond in song with thanksgiving. Once again, singing with thanksgiving to God in your hearts, he says. So, so we respond with thanksgiving to what we hear, right? The preacher preach and, and we respond to what we're studying and what we're learning from one another. Look, church, some of you might be saying here, listen, I am, I can't sing. I, I am tone deaf. And it's true. You might be, you may not be asked to lead here from the stage, the entire congregation in song. But it's not about the quality of your singing. It's about the state of your heart. And this is what Paul is after. Singing with thankfulness where? In your heart. Singing with thankfulness in your heart. Singing in your heart. It's the state of your heart. Consider what one commentator said. Singing activates different parts of the brain than than does preaching. God made your brain. He knows what he's doing. Rational, logical preaching energizes one part of the brain while singing and music energizes another. Both have the same goal to facilitate the rich dwelling of the word in your heart. And that's what good music does. Facilitates the dwelling of God's word in your heart. So we see first that Christ If Christ is to have priority in his church, his peace will rule the church. And second, his word will permeate. And these two aspects, they kind of feed off of one another. If we don't have peace in the body, then we hinder the word of God from dwelling in the body. And if we don't feed on the word, then we lose his peace and become preoccupied with lesser things. And so these things are so important. If Christ is going to be first in this body, we need to have this We need to have his peace rule and we need to have his word dwell. And finally, third, Paul adds a church where Christ comes first is where the name of Christ dominates the church. I want us to look at this final verse briefly. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God, the father. This is Paul's concluding statement that encompasses literally everything about our walk with 
the Lord. Encompasses everything about our walk with the Lord. And he says, whatever you do, you do it in the name. You do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, names meant much more to ancient culture than they do today. We, we name our kids based on the sound of a particular name or, or we found a good list on the internet and we, or we try to match him by the first letter and we say all of our kids are going to start with letter A or letter Z or, or we have all kinds of rubrics that, that we follow, right? But, but in ancient times, names were descriptive of a person or, or given as inspiration. Paul tells us that we should do all things and say all things in the name of. And get this, to do something in the name of means by the authority of and representation of. So these two things, by the authority of and representation of. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying, right, with the authority of Christ and our prayer has to be consistent with the character of Christ. That's why we need to know Jesus in order to properly pray in his name. Otherwise, our prayer may be missing the target, just adding Pray in Christ's name, amen, is not a magic formula that delivers to you anything you want to ask of the Lord. And here Paul says that whatever we do or say must be done and said in the name of Jesus. In other words, is this consistent with the will and character of Christ? In another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul writes, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It is humbling, brothers and sisters, to think how much we do in our life for our own glory. We just need to pause and, and reflect and analyze our motives. And we're convicted by the fact that a lot of what I do, I'm not motivated by the name of Christ to make him great, to exalt him. Somehow, somewhere, I worry about my own fame. I worry about my own name. Someone said we can easily fool ourselves into thinking that we are serving Jesus, but there are ulterior motives inside pulling the strings for our own notoriety. Is the name of Christ known in this church? Do we promote Christ? Who do we promote as members of his body? Are are we concerned about the fame of Christ's name or are we concerned about our own and what people will think of us rather than pointing them to Christ? Does Christ occupy the first place in our deeds, as Paul says, and in our speech, in our words? Whatever you do in word, or deed. Notice again this, this last part, giving thanks. Give thanks. The name of Christ dominates the church when its members are grateful and thankful for what God in Christ has done for them, and they cannot be silent. That is why, church, if you allow the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, to dwell in you, and, and all you're doing is just waking up and reminding yourself, At one point, I was going to hell. Today, I'm not. Why, Tim, are you not going to hell? Is it because of something in you? No, it's because of what Christ has done and only because of what Christ has done. And when you realize whose you are, who you belong to as a Christian, you belong to a king, you've been rescued from darkness, you've been transferred into his kingdom. And that this king is on the throne. Brothers and sisters, you will strive and you will desire to make his name known. And to the extent that we keep the gospel front and center, to the extent that we allow the word of Christ, the gospel to penetrate us and to remain right here. So that it is this filter through which we analyze everything. Verse 17 will be true of us. And verse 17 will be done for the glory of God, not our own glory. What a lesson, church. The peace of Christ rules the word of God, permeates the name of Christ, dominates. And as we close, let us ask ourselves these questions. 
Are my relationships in this body governed by the peace of Christ? Are my relationships in this body governed by peace of Christ? Am I being saturated with the word of Christ through teaching, admonishing, and singing? And then finally, do my actions and speech bring fame to Christ's name? Church, when we all commit ourselves to these things as born-again Christians, we'll make much of Christ, and he will certainly be honored in this church. And Grace Hill will point to his amazing work, and people will be drawn to what he has done and what he is doing, not to what we're doing. Our Father, we are so thankful to you. We're thankful to you that Christ is our Lord. Oh, may he be so in our practice, not just in our position. I pray that you would transform our thinking. I pray that, Lord, his peace would rule and govern our interaction with one another and that his word would constantly be present and would continue to permeate and and, and affect all the areas. Perhaps there are things there are we know that for a fact there are things that are not yet surrendered to you i pray would you expose that begin that with me with other men with the entire congregation lord we pray that the spirit would work that the word would permeate and that we would be in the business of admonishing and teaching and exhorting one another through the word and oh lord we pray that as we do this that all of our doing all of our speech, all of our speaking would be done for Christ. This is a lofty goal. We are not able to accomplish it and achieve it on our own, but the spirit who is in us, he compels us to do this. We are new men and women who have called into your presence. Build us up, we pray. Help us to resolve to live for you. Build this church, I pray. Would you encourage us to look to Christ, not on ourselves, And when we are so excited about what Christ is doing and what he has done, may we turn around and go into our communities and to speak this word to others so that they would be attracted, not by what's going on with us, but what happened to us because of Christ and that the ultimate magnet would be Christ alone. Build us up. Help us to sing to you right now. We thank you for this amazing gift of song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.